Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider together this Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism and the address of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, I want to look at it in the light of Isaiah 63, verse 15, to Isaiah 64, verse 12, where we have a prayer of the people of God. Isaiah 63, verse 15 to 64, verse 12. We're going to consider that passage under the theme, You Are Our Father. And we're going to consider, first of all, the circumstances of the prayer. In the second place, the petitions of the prayer. And in the third place, the ground of the prayer. So we look first at the circumstances of the prayer. And this is uh, these circumstances are really... Uh, consist of two things, both of which are described in the prayer itself. The prayer falls into a context in the prophecy of Isaiah, which also has some things to say about the circumstances of the prayer, but we're going to look first at what the prayer itself has to say. In the first part of the circumstances of the prayer is the destruction of the temple and of the city Of Jerusalem. You find that in verse 18 of chapter 63. So if you look at verse 18 of chapter 63, you see there that the people say in their prayer, Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. They are talking about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar's armies had broken into the city of Jerusalem during the reign of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah and had entered the temple, profaned it, taken away its treasures, and destroyed it. You read about that destruction of the temple in Psalm 74, verses 3 and following, where the people are again calling upon God, and they say to him, Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has done has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land." So it's the destruction of the temple, first of all, that we find as part of the circumstances of this prayer. But if you turn now to um, chapter 64, verses 10 and 11, you see a little bit more about this as well. There in verse 10, the people say, Your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. And so this destruction which Nebuchadnezzar and his armies have worked in the temple is a destruction that has extended also to Zion, to Jerusalem, and in fact to all the holy cities of God's people. That is, all the cities of the land where the people of God dwelt and where the Holy One of Israel dwelt with them. These places have become wildernesses and desolations. That is, there are no inhabitants left in these places anymore. They have been removed, and they have all gone into captivity, 
and these places now are habitations for wild animals. So the cities of Jerusalem, including Jerusalem, the center of God's rule in among his people, and Zion, the fortress, the city of God, are gone. The people have been removed from there into the land of captivity. In verse 11, they talk again about the temple. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things laid waste. The temple is, of course, the same thing as the sanctuary. And if you go back for a moment to 63, verse 18, you notice that they speak of that temple as your sanctuary. It's God's house, God's holy place, the place where he has come down to dwell among his people. But here in verse 11, it is our holy and beautiful temple because the Lord brought them also into that place to live with them there, with him there. And their presence there in that house was signified by the altar of incense and by the table of showbread and by the seven branches of the candlestick. The Lord brought his people into his house and it was their house also, therefore, that had been laid waste. But you can hear here in verse 11 the mourning of the people, the sorrow of the people also in this destruction of their house. It's burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Now the very striking thing about this prayer of Isaiah 63 and 64 is that Isaiah spoke these words long before the people of Israel went into captivity. Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And there were several kings who followed Hezekiah, his son Manasseh, Josiah, uh, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. All of these were kings who followed Hezekiah. It was, in fact, if you add up the reigns of those uh, kings that followed Hezekiah, something like about a hundred years before this captivity in Babylon actually happened. But the prayer is given to the people of God because this whole last part of the prophecy of Isaiah is an answer to God's answer to a very specific prophecy that God had spoken to Hezekiah. You find that prophecy in chapter 39, verses 5 and 6 and 7. Chapter 39, verses 5, 6, and 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It's in the context of that prophecy of Isaiah then that all these chapters from chapter 40 on are spoken and they are God's comfort to his people in that captivity. 
And so the whole section begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. The Lord continues throughout this prophecy then to speak of the captivity of his people. Turn for a moment to Isaiah 51, verses 17, or verse 14, rather, first of all. Isaiah 51, verse 14. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. And again in verses 17 and following. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you, have, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Or in chapter 52, verse 5. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. So what Isaiah is doing here in chapter 63 and 64 is giving to the people of God from God himself, a prayer which they will make their own during those years of the Babylonian captivity. That's the first set of the circumstances of this prayer. The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the removal of the people from their land. But the second part of the circumstances of this prayer is the people's sin. And you find that in, especially, chapter 64, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now, if you look at those verses, you see that the confession of sin begins in verse 5, the middle of the verse. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. So they make confession of their sin to God there. And then in verse 6, they go on to describe this sin in uh, terms of the ceremonial law. Verse 6, but we are all like an unclean thing. And you remember, of course, from the law of God in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy especially, that there were many things that became unclean to the people of Israel. Dishes, for example, could become unclean through coming into contact with a dead body. And those dishes then had to be cleansed. Sometimes they even had to be broken. Houses could become unclean. The, uh, uh, the plague could come into the house and they would have to go in and scour the house, clean the house thoroughly in order to make it clean again. Sometimes they had to remove stones from the house Sometimes they even had to destroy the house altogether because it had become unclean. People could become unclean. If they touched a dead body, for example, they had to go through ceremonial cleansings to remove from them the uncleanness of these dead bodies. Lepers were unclean. And the point of all this uncleanness that was described in the law is that the people were being shown by God in this very visible and physical way that they were spiritually unclean. They were being shown by God that they were like those things that were unclean. And being like those things that were unclean, 
They had to be cut off from God. Those people who became unclean like the lepers and so on could not go into the house of God. They were moved outside the camp, in fact, in the wanderings in the wilderness, and they were put outside the city walls during Israel's habitation of the land of Israel. They were cut off from God because of their spiritual uncleanness. And so the people are saying, we've sinned, we've become unclean, we are cut off from you because of our sins. And they go even more vividly into this in the next line. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And those words, filthy rags, people of God, could be more precisely translated as clothing of menstruation. Clothing of menstruation. All our righteousnesses, they say, are like clothing of menstruation. When a woman had her period, she became ceremonially unclean. And her clothing became unclean, and her bed became unclean, and anything she sat on became unclean. And there was a certain period of time that had to pass before she would be clean again. And the people are saying, our righteousnesses, the very best works that we do are like that unclean clothing of a menstruating woman. Now think about this in terms of what the scriptures say of the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed, the scriptures say, with his righteousness. And that righteousness is sufficient to cover all our uncleanness. In fact, to remove all our uncleanness, ultimately. But what the people are saying here is, even when we take our best works, they are not an adequate covering for our essential uncleanness. Not an adequate covering for the uncleanness and corruption of our hearts. Not an adequate unclean, uh, covering for the filth of our minds and the filth of our desires. They can do nothing for us. Our righteousnesses are unclean clothing to us. And they then go on to talk about the consequences of this sin. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. In other words, it's because of our sins that you have removed us from our land and brought us over here to the land of Babylon. And now there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. They're saying it's because of your judgments that we are here in this land. We have sinned. And you have brought on us your judgments by destroying our holy and beautiful temple and making our cities wildernesses and desolations. Those then are the two circumstances that we find in this prayer. The sin of the people and the judgment of God on them for their sin. The destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of of the temple. So let's look in the second place then at the petitions of this prayer. And these petitions are scattered throughout this prayer. And so we're going to be looking at some individual verses as we work our way again through the prayer this time. 
And we find that this begins, these petitions begin in verse 15 already. The very first words of the prayer. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation holy and glorious. That's their first petition. Look down from heaven. Now, what they're talking about, of course, is the fact that God is in the heavens. God is exalted above them. And they use here the language, the, the same language that they use in chapter 64 when they talk about the temple. Notice in verse 11 of chapter 64, they describe the temple as our holy and beautiful temple. It's the same two words that we have here in verse 15. See from your habitation, holy and glorious. So they're saying about the earthly sanctuary, the place where they met with God, that's been destroyed. But you, they call upon God in his heavenly sanctuary, which is inviolable by men, of course. And they call upon that God who is in the heavenly sanctuary, exalted above them, to look down on them and to regard them in their afflicted state. This is very much like what we read in Psalm 113. Psalm 113, verses 4, 5, and 6. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. They are saying to God, humble yourself. To behold our fallen and miserable condition. And of course God did that in our Lord Jesus Christ. Very literally. He humbled himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and on the earth. The second part of that petition in verse 15 is where are your zeal? And your strength. That word zeal is an interesting word, and it's an interesting word because you find it translated basically in two ways in the Old Testament. On the one hand, it's translated as jealousy, and on the other hand, as zeal. For example, when you read in the second commandment, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, it's this word that's used there. And this zeal then and jealousy go together in the scriptures. And what we see is, as we look at the use of that word, especially in the prophecy of Isaiah, that the Lord's jealousy is for his people. He says, those people are my people. They belong to me. And don't any of you nations around touch them. He's jealous for them. He's jealous, therefore, also for their safety. He's jealous for their well-being. And he's angry with the nations when they, those nations attack his people. Even when he is bringing the nations against them for the judgment, for the sins which they have committed. Let's look for, at a couple of examples of the use of that word zeal and, or jealousy in uh, Isaiah First in Isaiah 9, verse 7, 
This is that famous prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ. Unto us a child is born. And in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts then will establish the government of our Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, chapter 37, verse 32, another example For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Chapter 42, verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Or Psalm, or Isaiah 59, verse 17. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. So the whole point of that word here is that God had been jealous for his people. He had been so jealous for his people that when his enemies attacked them in the past, he had always defended them against those enemies and saved them from their enemies. And here the people are saying as they sit in their lonely captivity in Babylon, where is your zeal? Where is your jealousy? What has happened to it? We've always seen it in the past. and Now it's gone. We see it no more. And then there's that word strength. And in the Hebrew, that word strength is in the plural, so we could probably translate your deeds of strength. And this too is a recalling of what the Lord has done for them in the past and all the mighty works that he had performed for them throughout their history. The mighty works he'd done in Egypt, the mighty works done in the wilderness, the mighty works done during the period of the judges in Canaan, the mighty works done under David and other kings of Israel, All that history is filled with the accounting of God's wonderful works for his people, his works of power and might. And they say, where is your strength? What has happened to all those deeds? And finally, then, in the last line of the verse, the yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me, or the yearning of your bowels, And what they're talking about there is that love which the Lord had had for them in the past and the compassion which he had shown for them and the many mercies which had been displayed throughout the whole of their history. And their question is, are they restrained? Are you holding back now your love, your compassion, your mercies? Is there nothing for us? Anymore? In verse 17, then, we find further petition. And this petition comes down really to one word. In the beginning of that verse, they say, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear?" They acknowledge the sovereignty of the Lord over even their sin. Not to blame him for their sin, 
Not to accuse him then of being the one who is really responsible for their present condition, but because they understand the sovereignty of their God even in sin, and they want to know the purpose of God in leading them in that difficult and painful way. Why have you done this? Why have you hardened our hearts? Why have you made us stray from your fear? Return, there's the petition, return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Come back to us again, so that we may know you again as our God. In, verses six, in chapter 64, verses 1 and 2, still more petition. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. They say, tear through these heavens which are a barrier between us and ourselves. Come down to the earth. Descend to us and deliver us from these adversaries who have overtaken us. In verse 9, still more petition. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. And finally, also in verse 12. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Will you hold back your compassion, your mercy, your loving kindness and your truth towards us because of what we have done? Will you be silent to us forever? Will we never again hear your kindly voice speaking to us? Will you continue to afflict us endlessly? So in the midst of their sin, the people are confessing their sin, crying for the forgiveness of God and crying to God to return, to show his mercy, his love, and his compassion to them. But the question is, of course, how can they do it? How can they do it? They've admitted their sin, and the sins were not light sins, not little things that they had done. They were horrible sins which they had committed over periods of hundreds of years, in fact. They had been committing these same sins, breaking all of God's commandments, forsaking him for the idols of the nations, offering their children to those idols, worshiping him according to their own imaginations, doing everything that he had commanded them not to do and doing nothing that he had commanded them to do. How can they say to him, return, come again, show us your mercy, And the answer to this petition is in two words, which occur three times in this prayer. Our Father. Our Father. You find it first in chapter 63, verse 16. Doubtless, you are our Father. And again in chapter 64, Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. 
Also, by the way, a second time in verse 16 of chapter 63, you, O Lord, are our Father. They say it over and over again. You are our Father. We've sinned. You have judged us for our sins as we deserve. But you are our Father. And of course, when they say that, they are recalling his covenant. That covenant that he had made with their father Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. They are recalling the fact that he had brought them forth. That is, that he had been the one who had given them birth at Mount Sinai. That he had been the one who had formed them to be his people and had taken them to be his sons and his daughters. And they are referring to the fact that He had, through all of their history, in many different circumstances, even in sin, shown them his love, his kindness, and his mercy. In fact, in this very chapter, chapter 63, just before the prayer, there's reference to some of this. Look at verse 8 of chapter 63. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie, So he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. This, people of God, is the ground of their prayer. This is why they can ask for forgiveness. You are our Father. Verses 11, and 14, 11 to 14 also talk about this in chapter 63 there. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before, him, before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble? It's on the ground of that fact that he is their father that they are able to make this prayer. Now that prayer which the people make here is a very striking thing. When they say to God, you are our father, that should astonish us, people of God. And it should astonish us, not just because it is such an astonishing thing for ourselves. It is that we can address this holy and great God as Father is a very astonishing thing. But it is an astonishing thing, especially in the Old Testament, because you can go through almost the whole Old Testament, I think, and find almost no places in the whole of the Old Testament where the people actually call him our Father. 
They knew him as Lord. They knew him as God. They knew him as Yahweh. They knew him as the Most High. They knew him as the Holy One of Israel. They knew him by combinations of all those names. But they did not call him, very often anyway, by that name, our Father. The Psalms are full of prayers. Two-thirds of the Psalms are prayers or have prayers in them. And yet, think about how many Psalms speak of God as Father. How many times do the people of God in the Psalms say to him, Our Father? Now this was not, this was not because they did not know him as Father. God had spoken of his fatherhood, of the people of Israel many times to them. He told Moses and Aaron to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, we have another example of it. Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Or in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 4. Jeremiah 3, verse 4. Another passage where he's talking about his son. And he says, will you not from this time cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth. Or Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Where he says this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Isaiah 22, verse 21. Isaiah 22, verse 21. I will clothe him again about the Lord Jesus Christ. I will clothe him with your robe. I will strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. They knew not only that they, he was their father, but that they were his children. Just a couple of references here. We've already referred to Isaiah 63, verse 8, where he speaks of them as his children. But you have it also in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 20. Ezekiel 16, verse 20. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? So they knew God as their father. They knew him to be their children, his children, themselves to be his children. Why then do we not find them calling upon him as father? I think Galatians 4 explains it for us, at least in part. Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. And Paul's talking there about Israel in the Old Testament. They were the Son of God, yes. 
But because they were still in their immaturity, still in their childhood, they did not really differ much from a slave. But then look what he says also in verses 4 and following. And this was something that had not yet happened in the Old Testament. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son. His Son had not yet come into our flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, now, he says, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. They did not yet have the Spirit in the measure that we have that Spirit and could not therefore draw as close to Him as we can. They were held, as it were, at arm's length, could not enter the sanctuary, could not enter the holy place or the most holy place. God hid Himself behind the veil. And the only way they could draw near was through that atoning priesthood of Aaron and his son. But now he has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And yet here in Isaiah 63, that's why this is so surprising, people of God. They say, you are our Father. And it becomes the ground of their prayer for deliverance from their enemies and from their sins. And it's a very strong ground that they find here. Look first to see the strength of this ground at verse 16 of chapter 63. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. That is, Abraham was our father. He may refuse to know us. Jacob, Israel, was our father, He may refuse to acknowledge us because of what we have become. But you are our father. And even though Abraham and Jacob should deny us and refuse to know us, you cannot. We are engraved on the palms of your hands. And you cannot forget us. They go on to say then in the rest of that verse, our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. He's the one who redeemed them from the land of Egypt. But he was their Redeemer from everlasting. They mean from eternity. He had chosen them from eternity to be his people. He had set his love upon them in eternity. And will he now say, they are not mine? They are not my children? That's his name. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. This is how we know you. And this is how the nations know you. As our Redeemer from everlasting. Will you deny your own name? In chapter 64, verse 8, 
Again, in referring to God as their father, they say, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you our potter, and we all are the work of your hand. Now that may not sound like a very wonderful statement there. We are the clay, and you are the potter. But the people are recalling some of the things that Isaiah has said prior to this. And we need to look at some of those things because it's very important here. That word potter is a word that means basically simply maker or former or fashioner. And it's the same word that you find in Isaiah 43 verse 1. Go back to that chapter. There are several verses we want to refer to there. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. That's the word that we have in our text. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And again in verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Or again in verse 21, This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. Or in chapter 44, verse 2, and we, we could go on to other passages as well, but we'll satisfy ourselves with these. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So when they say you are the potter and we are the clay, they're reminding God of all that he has said in this prior prophecy. And he has said to them, I have formed you. You are mine. You are my people. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid even in this captivity in Babylon. In chapter 64, also in verses 3 and 4, we find them expanding on some of these ideas. Verses 1 and 2, we saw that petition of God to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. And then in verses 3 and 4, they remind him that he had done this for them in the past. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God. Besides you, nations have looked for gods all over the place and they have never seen any other god besides you. But what is the character of this god? It's in the last line of verse 4. Who acts for the one who waits for him. We're saying to God, we are waiting. We are waiting for you. We sit here in our exile waiting for you. Are you not the one who acts for those who wait for you? Rend the heavens and come down. This is what his fatherhood means for them. That they justly judged for their sins can still say to him, you are our Father. Not for what we have done. Not for anything that makes us worthy of your love 
or your fatherhood, but simply because of what you are in yourself. If you would deal with us according to our iniquities, we would certainly perish. But you are our Father. By way then of closing, people of God, let's remind us ourselves of some of the things that this means. And we're going to divide this into two sections. First of all, that He is our Father means that we are His children. Now, He created us in the beginning to be His children. Paul says in Acts 17, we are all the offspring of God. But that relationship to God was lost through our sins, and we became children of the devil instead. And God, out of the fallen human race, chose for himself a people whom he loved from everlasting. That's the first thing, the essential thing about this fatherhood of God. He loves his sons and his daughters. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And Paul says it in Ephesians 1, in love, having predestinated us. And that love is beautifully talked about in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He loves us. The most astonishing thing in the history of the world. He adopts us to be his sons and daughters. He gives us his name. He gives us a place in his house, his holy and beautiful house. And he promises us an inheritance, everlasting and glorious. Not only does he adopt us, but he begets us again to a new life and gives to us again the image of God which we lost in the fall, righteousness and holiness and knowledge, making us like his own son who sits at his own right hand. He trains us in his ways. Psalm 25 talks about his training of us. Psalm 25, verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. He chastens us, but in love. He chastened his people in Babylon, in love. He provides for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All these things he does because we are his children. And because we are his children, we know him as our father. And as our father, we revere him. Malachi 1, again. Malachi 1, verse 6. son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I, then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. 
to you priests who despise my name. We revere him, but we also trust him. We trust him as the God who has spoken his promises, who has fulfilled those promises to us in Christ, who has made us his sons and daughters, and whose love is an everlasting love. Because we trust him, we depend on him. And because we depend on him, we ask all things from him that are necessary for our good. And we obey him. He is our Father. And he is, finally, our Father in heaven. That means that we do not seek him in the earthly sanctuary as Israel of old did. We seek him in the heavenly sanctuary, which our Lord Jesus Christ has opened for us by his passing through the veil. He allows us to come into the heavenly sanctuary of God. We do not think of him as an earthly God, but we think of him as a heavenly one, one who is highly exalted above ourselves, and yet who has the grace and loving kindness towards us that allows us to call upon his name. And, finally, we do not ask for him particularly, especially earthly things, but we ask from him heavenly things. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In short, then, people of God, we make this prayer of Isaiah 63 our own. Are you not our Father? Are we not the clay and you the potter? Even though our earthly fathers should forget us and our earthly mothers abandon us, the Lord will not forsake us. He is our Father in heaven. Look down. Regard us. Let your zeal and your strength and your jealousy and your yearning of your heart towards us be seen and known by us. O oh, Father in heaven. May God bless the proclamation of his word.